0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. BofAML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We have a wonderful guest to brief us through this half hour. And it's on Distress Desk. It's about taking opportunity when nobody else has the courage. Hans Humes, out of Williams College, uh, has made a career of listening to the markets and then acting when few have the courage uh, to act. He is with Greylock and joins us um, this morning. Where do you learn to buy distress? You were a literature major. It, you know, are you, are you reading Dickens or... You know Edgar Allan Poe to figure out how do you train to buy something for twenty cents on the dollar when everybody's running for the theater exit?
1: Um, I think I had less to do with my education, probably more to do with where I grew up. We moved to Nigeria when I was three years old, and then from Nigeria to Morocco. And uh, my father likes to talk about me haggling with the merchants in the markets in Morocco. So that's really interesting, <laughs> actually. And uh, you know, when I was a kid, I used to. I realized that it was pretty easy to make money every time around spring cleaning. So you wait for people to take all the garbage out. Yeah, you can run around, take the nice things, and two weeks later you have a stoop sale.
0: Yeah. Are you an embarrassment at a modern Starbucks? Do you go in and you know, I, bid for the mocha latte or um, You
1: know, I'm probably not the best person to go to a Starbucks. I yeah. just understand, don't understand why you could spend that much money on a cup of coffee.
0: What's the opportunity in distress right now? Is it like it was in 07, 08, 09? Or is it all quiet on the Hans Hume front?
1: No, I, I certainly doesn't. Ha- you don't have the opportunities that you, you had in uh, 2009. Um, but what's going on currently, um, one— we're seeing the sort of the last few legs of a trade that came about um, in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, which was Greece. Um, there, you know, ended up being a technical default on the, the bonds, restructuring bonds traded down to actually quite b- a bit below mm-hmm. uh, lower than than twenty cents in the dollar, they're trading at the same price as North Korean debt. Um, and now, on the back of Brexit, uh, what you are seeing in um you know the eu is staying together um mm-hmm. uh so as soon as the vote happened last year you could really tell that greece was going to be on a one way train um so you've got recovery maybe 2 300 basis points left of tightening on the bonds in greece and you're probably going to have a pretty good leg of well, a, an uptrade in the equities
0: we we within that is is the basic idea of a cram down. I've asked this question twice last week. Let me ask it of you now. I would suggest any resolution of a distressed sovereign process is somebody has to take a price loss. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing out of Europe is we're going to extend duration out until we're all dead and we're going to lower the interest rate down to something I can stomach. Okay, that's Hans Hume 101. But isn't part of Hans Hume 101 is the creditors have to take a price cut? You know, you know, you come in, you buy the piece at 20, and they own it at 100 or 80 or whatever. And, and the takeout price has got to be like 40 or 50, right?
1: Um, you know, the takeout price depends on the country. In the case of Greece, the, what they're talking about now in terms of debt relief only is in relation to the official sector. Um, you know, we, in the 2012 deal, the private sector took the haircut. We took 53.5 cents of principal haircut. So, We're not going to be part of any future debt forgiveness. And quite honestly, I think the Greeks and their biggest creditors have some sense of what they're going to do. It's the IMF and the EU. So, you know, to a much broader, you know, from a much broader perspective, you're you're putting your finger on one of the big drivers in how you approach this market, which is what possibility do you have of getting crammed down? And it's really a case-by-case situation.
0: Okay, that's a beautiful, let's continue that. Francine Lacroix uh, joins us now. Francine, good morning. Good morning, Tom. What a difficult comment by Prime Minister May. It it seems to me, and I I can honestly say, Francine, I don't think we've seen the set of many events of crisis exhaustion in the United Kingdom. We've ever seen that in the United States. I mean, is the city just overwhelmed this Monday morning?
2: Well, what you're talking about, of course, Tom, is this um, you know latest terror incident. And uh, we understand from Theresa May that this is a terror attack. It was a van that plowed into a crowd outside North London Mosque. And it's basically, as you say, Tom, it's the third terrorist attack on the capital in as many months. I don't know if uh, people are exhausted, but there certainly seems to be a resolve in in the capital of the UK uh, so that it doesn't divide the society and brings people closer together, fighting together. But mm. all of this is a distraction because there's also Brexit talks. So, Of course, the government trying to deal with two things at the yeah. same time, whilst the prime minister is weakened almost by the day.
0: Interesting. I don't know, Francine, if you heard Hans Hume's comments there in Greece, but I really thought they were interesting about taking a distressed piece and looking at a time extension and interest rate deduction, reduction, I should say. And as he said, a selected set of cram-downs where each case is different as well. Uh, Francine, why don't you continue with Hans Humes right now?
2: Yeah, Hans, I was really interested in your comment on Greece and whether you actually thought that any other European countries would need a bailout in the next 18 months.
1: I I think that the answer is no. I mean, what I saw, I think the same as everybody else did post uh, the Brexit vote, um, was that there was a sense in the EU, you know, the different organizations managing the EU, setting up for a tough negotiation with the UK, which the UK has made tougher for itself, um, but basically ring fencing the rest of, you know, the market. Um, so I think that, you know, there's some been some concerns, obviously in the past about Spain, but currently maybe a little bit about the sovereign on the Portugal, you know, in Portugal and maybe the banking system in in Italy. But these are all situations that the balance sheet of the EU can support quite readily. And what you've seen is a big change in the rhetoric that's come from the deep pockets of the EU Germany. Even Schäuble has backed off some of the austerity talk and has been basically supportive of the entire EU project. So I, I don't see any other countries no. falling by the wayside. Let's
0: continue on this. We'll come back with Hans Hume of Greylock and really a lot to talk about there to unpack on this strange phrase, crammed down. Francine Laquan, London, I'm Tom Kinney, Mr. Gura, off, off, off today. With us, Hans Hume of Greylock. We we opened hours ago, Hans, on China, and and I think we want to wander back. Not only to China, but the the distress of Asia. When you and I studied this racket, there was little in bonds in Asia. Is that no longer true? Is there like almost a mature debt market where guys like you can play in Asia?
1: Um, Yeah, there's clearly a fixed income market that's developed. Um, You know, mature, it's a bit, you know, it's mature, yes. Uh, The issue there is that on a relative basis... The opportunities for guys like us aren't quite as attractive as in some of the other, you know, geographical areas like Latin America. It's still bear. Well, there's just been a lot of money chasing, chasing returns. Mm -hmm. So you know, you'll get uh, on a credit basis, uh, issuers from China, where you're not going to get a real pickup in yield for the kind of risk that we think you'll be taking. Um, you know, potentially it's the biggest market out there. If there is a major correction in China and a major sell-off, there'll be a lot of money going for the exit.
2: Uh, are, Hans, are you expecting a, a correction in China, or what's the likelihood at the moment? I know you're still pretty bullish on the country, but even if it's a thirty percent chance of a correction, th- that could be quite ugly.
1: Yeah, no, and that's fair. Um, you know, personally, I don't see anything this year. Um, I'm pretty constructive on the markets in general, um, but. You know as a business we don't we don't like to try to anticipate crisis by p- putting short positions on. We find it's actually easier to wait for the sell-off and then step in for the you know a workout um, so if it happens, we'll be there. Um, I'm not going to sit there and set up a broad number of short positions in Chinese corporates and you know try to profit on a downturn because one, I don't think it's a likely scenario, and two even if I did it the negative carry can knock us out of the trade before we realize the timing.
2: If there is a downturn, Hans, what is the first signal that actually tells you that there's a downturn? Is there a concern that it could be like the 08 crisis where some people saw it, but actually no one realized until it was too late?
1: Um, yeah, I think, you know, building up to the 08 crisis, you saw a lot of cracks you know, starting 2006, 2007. So it was one of these things where people, you know, the markets were telling you that something was going on, and the question was, had we found a bottom? And then, you know, because of real estate here in the U.S., then you put pressure on financial institutions, and then, you know, Bear Stearns, and then finally collapse of Lehman, and then we went off. So I don't think we're going to have one thing, you know, a market... If China leads a downturn, we'll get a lot of signals before things act the bottom falls out
0: yeah but but one of the things about your assessment there is could it happen again as Francine and I know every Friday afternoon the doom and gloom letters come out that it's going to be the same again, et cetera, et cetera <laughs> i'm not hearing that from you that it's the same framework as 07, seven oh eight
1: yeah i don't think there's uh, you know the markets are very different, so I think you know you're not. We don't have nearly the amount of leverage in our markets that we did in 2008. Um, so, if, if there is a all-in risk-off, you know, trade where everything correlates to one and we're basically going off a cliff, mm-hmm. it's going to have to happen for a different reason than it did in 08. Um, and I but. Yeah, no, I I just don't see the circumstances for a similar type of, you know, Mm. turnaround in our market.
0: Generous with your time this morning. Thank you so much. Hans Hume was with Greylock, folks. We haven't seen him in ages, which is my fault. It's good to see him. This morning, without question, the interview of the day on Amazon and on Whole Foods Market. Joining us now from Newberger Berman is Charles Cantor, with decades of experience in attempting to find value. In the distinction here is he is a kinder, gentler uh, person of bringing together transactions and combinations. You're not adversarial when you dial one eight hundred. Avocado and say, You guys are too cheap, let's go. You do it a more gentle way. what's the canter distinction
3: we're trying to uh think about long term value. We're very active and engaged with our companies we're trying to have a constructive dialogue we We think we can add a lot of value in helping companies think through financial communication, capital allocation, capital structure and and um it's all about long term and trying to kind of mm-hmm. put the noise put the noise away.
0: The Chief Executive Officer of Whole Foods has had to skip around on rhetoric recently. You're nodding uh here, Charles Cantor, called another operation Greedy Bastards in this transaction. Is Newberger Berman Greedy Bastards?
3: I would hope not. We we're trying to get a, a reasonable reward for our effort over time. Mm-hmm. Um and um I think it's best for others to comment on that. It's but ultimately Um, when you become a public company, your responsibilities are to shareholders. When you remain a private company, your responsibilities are those that own you privately. But once once you come to the public markets, um, the game changes for many and in different ways.
0: Uh, Legendarily, you walked into the Bryant Park Whole Foods and said, this place needs to be revalued. Was it the gluten-free avocados that did
3: it for you? no i I think what Whole Foods has done so well is it's it 's convinced uh, the millennials that it 's a very c- cool place to go shop and and the Brian Park shop is by no means a grocery store it 's actually a restaurant with grocery as a, as a side item mm. so they 've been whole foods and and and, and, and the management team there have been very forward thinking in, in 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 how they 've built out their boxes um, and and what people f- for a long time didn't appreciate or may not have realised is that a a third of Whole Foods business is pre- is prepared foods and and restaurants of course have a different margin structure than groceries mm-hmm. and um it, Bryant Park like like many of Whole Foods boxes around the country uh, has an incredible energy and vibe that that you probably don't experience well, in some of your traditional grocery stores.
0: Jeff Bezos of Amazon, he needs a bidding war. You have made clear with your report from Dow Jones and Wall Street Journal that one should be had. Who would come in to lift this transaction over $14 billion?
3: Look, I, I think— um I, I I think I suggested that that Amazon was typically thrifty in 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 how they thought about the value of Whole Foods. We think uh, Whole Foods is a uniquely attractive strategic asset um, Do you it, have a valuation
0: number that is in mind without giving away the in house secrets
3: we don 't but 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 there's there 's plenty of room um, above should should others step in. I think what was so remarkable. Amongst the many remarkable things around around thinking about the deal was that Amazon's share value went up um, equal to the total transaction value of the Whole 3% Foods. The three percent
0: move in Amazon. The three percent to
3: that. move. I mean, I kind of candidly joke that that Amazon got Whole Foods for free. It's yeah. I, I can't remember of another transaction where the entire purchase price right. was covered by 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 the increase in Amazon's mm-hmm. value. Look, Walmart for example went down twelve billion dollars. So I think there are many grocery executives, boards of directors, both in the US and globally, that are probably going right. to think about the strategic value of this asset
0: very quickly here would you suggest any acquirer including mr bezos could bring net income and the bottom line of the income statement up rapidly can they add if it's a hundred basis point business making one percent can they get that up to 200 basis points quickly
3: I, i think um as a deal itself um those that acquire this asset will make a very very good risk adjusted return i think Amazon specifically, I'm guessing, here, yeah, but I'm probably not far off. Um, they have about 50 million Prime members. My guess is Whole Foods has about 12 to 13 million customers. <laughs> There's a huge opportunity to take, to take the Prime members um, into the Whole Foods store, whether that be in person or... Um, or, th- or through the wire, so to speak.
0: Very quickly, and I want to come back, Charles Cantor. When people go into Whole Foods, within your research at Newburger Berman, are they buying the fancy pants organic stuff, or is Whole Foods about the more private label three sixty five? It's
3: it's it's it, it's probably a bit about both. I think people go to Whole Foods because the brand resonates with their values. And across America and across the world, people care about what they eat. Mm-hmm. And Whole Foods has been a pioneer in getting people well, to think through what they put in their body.
0: Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of dot com slash V.R., Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. And now we go to
4: David West in his conversation with Wilbur Ross. What is your main argument to them about why they should be investing in the United States right now, Mr. Secretary?
5: It's the same reason as American companies should be, and in fact are, namely regulatory reform, getting rid of red tape, tax reform, getting our rates down to very, very competitive levels, unleashing our energy resources, fixing our trade agreements, and creating a much more healthy environment for businesses and consumers.
4: So all of those reasons are the why. Excuse me. So let's talk about fixing those trade agreements. One of the things you mentioned, which comes within your purview. Um, to what extent is fixing the trade agreements? You've been very outspoken. You want trade, but you want fair trade. To what extent do tightening up those trade arrangements encourage U.S. investment in the sense that people need to be here to manufacture so they're not subject to whatever restrictions there might be?
5: Well, I think it's a factor, but probably a relatively small factor. I think cutting the tax rates hugely as we have is uh, planned to do is a very very big benefit we, our tax structure used to be a major disadvantage similarly our regulatory structure had been a huge disadvantage we were i believe the most overregulated country going well when you're paying a lot of tax and you're having a lot of regulatory red tape that discourages not only greenfield investment, it discourages any kind of investment in the country. So we think it's mostly a question of removing impediments and then coupling that with the normal benefits of the US, a huge population base, wonderful market, open access to it once you're here, highly educated workforce, Those are the kinds of fundamental factors that were always at work, but now are supplemented with the improvements in business climate created by President Trump.
4: As you suggest, Mr. Secretary, you have plans to cut taxes as well as reform taxes, to somewhat different things. Uh, you have plans, and there's a lot of euphoria about that initially during the Trump administration. What do you say to would-be investors right now who say, let's wait and see if that happens? Because right now, it looks somewhat less likely or is certainly delayed from what we originally thought last January.
5: Well the timing the administration has very little control over that really requires activity by the congress but we seem to be making very good progress on health care reform and that's really the prerequisite to getting the tax reform enacted so the first key to timing on tax will be when we get the health care reform completed
4: uh, talk about the trade agreements again that you raise. Where are we right now? For example, let's be specific on NAFTA. We've talked about that before when you've been on the program. Where are we in the process of renegotiating NAFTA, and who's responsible? Is it you or is it your colleague Bob Lightheiser?
5: Well, as to where we are, we are right now awaiting the maturation of the 90-day letter that we're required under the Trade Promotion Act to send to the Congress. That clock ticks on the 18th of August. 30 days before that, we, the, we will be revealing to the Congress a more detailed negotiating strategy than we had discussed with them before. So the 18th of August is a big red-letter day for trade. But even short of that, we have a big day. Very soon, in the middle of July, is our next announcement period and next meeting session with the Chinese. As you know, we've accomplished quite a little bit ever since the detente at the Mar-a-Lago conference. And we're hoping to achieve still more
4: deliverable items in the very, very near future. Okay, we want to welcome again our listeners on Bloomberg Radio as well as Bloomberg TV. We're talking with Wilbur Ross, the U.S. Commerce Secretary. So before we get to China, let's go back just for a moment to NAFTA. So you're saying mid-July there's supposed to be a more detailed outline of the negotiating strategy to commerce. Then August 18, you really start the negotiations. Give us a sense after that, what is your hope on the timetable when you might have something concluded with the Mexican government and the Canadian?
5: Well, both governments are quite receptive to the idea of a renegotiation. They both know that this is, at best, an outdated agreement. Doesn't really address the digital economy. It doesn't very much address services in general. Certainly doesn't do much on financial services. Also doesn't do very much on natural resources. So those are some big gaping holes in it, in part, because the Mexicans have changed their regulations for the better on natural resources, and in part because nobody way back when NAFTA was negotiated even knew there would be the digital economy. So first of all, it needs updating. Second of all, it needs some reprovisioning to adjust to the economic realities of today. For example, the rules of origin, namely what percentage of the total content of a product will qualify as true NAFTA product, even though it came from outside NAFTA. In automotive, they specified particular parts to which the percentage is applied. Well, half those parts aren't even used in cars anymore because automotive technology has progressed. So there are many things like that that need to be
4: fixed and i think everybody is up to the idea of fixing them is currency manipulation on the agenda in the negotiations with canada and mexico
5: well neither canada nor mexico in my view is a currency manipulator as you're aware the congress has specified that determining whether currency is manipulated is the purview of treasury and congress has laid out very very specific tests to apply those tests are applied twice a year generally in april and october and very recently treasury secretary mnuchin released the results of this year and found that there are no currency manipulations that's quite different from the question are there misalignments i think the mexican peso for example has been very weak against the dollar partly out of concern that the trade negotiations might go very badly. It lately has rallied some, and my best guess is that once we have a new NAFTA, there's a pretty good chance that both the Canadian and the Mexican currencies will strengthen because of removing that uncertainty from their picture. Uh, So that's the way we're looking at currency vis-à-vis
4: these negotiations. We're speaking with Wilbur Ross, he's U.S. Commerce Secretary for television and radio on Bloomberg. So Mr. Secretary, let's talk about one specific uh, uh, product, and that is steel. Uh, the administration has been quite outspoken and, I must say, has taken some action on steel that hasn't been taken a good long time. Uh, There are various reports about what the approach to steel might be, including the idea that perhaps there would be duty-free going up to a quota, and then after that a duty would kick in. Can you tell us what the approach of the, the Trump administration is right now to steel imports?
5: Well, it's right now a work in progress because we have not yet submitted our report from Commerce to the president, nor has he had a chance, therefore, to act upon it. But in general, enforcement has been a very big hallmark of the present administration. We now have in place 161 trade cases, which have put either anti-dumping or countervailing duties on steel products from about 37 different countries. So this, this has been a very big problem, the problem of global overcapacity and more importantly, global overproduction. So the report will address those issues, will address them in the context of national security to find the way that Section 232 defines it, which is a pretty broad definition, including very strong reference to the needs of the economy. So it will then perhaps make some specific recommendations as to measures to deal with that and those could range from the ones you described to more complicated ones but the real key will be what does the president ultimately decide to do with the recommendations he has announced that he intends to take bold action Mr. Secretary, what I just find puzzling is that U.S. steel producers are having trouble making money now, even though you have severe anti-dumping tariffs of,
2: like, triple digits uh, currently. Wh- why not just let it go? I mean, why you have to simulate end-user demand, whether or not you do anything about China, which is having its own problems with overcapacity and their own profits. So how does a- any more tariffs fix that?
5: Well, it's more complicated than just tariffs Uh, under 232, there's also the potential for quotas, there's the potential for tariff rate quotas, there are all kinds of potentials to be brought to bear. The reason that the individual cases have been ineffective is that the WTO, the World Trade Organization rules, are so precise that you have to identify very clearly the product and very clearly the place of origin. And what that means is if I'm a serial dumper, of which there are quite a few lurking out there, if I'm a serial dumper, all I have to do is transship it through another country and I evade the duty, or send it to another country for further processing, however trivial that processing might be, or give it a little further processing in my own country. So those trade cases help, but they have not been able to cure the systemic problem. That's why there are 37 different countries involved. The dumping of steel from one country into another makes that second country have excess capacity, which they then dump, and then the country they dump it into continues the saga. So one ton of dumped steel probably results in three or four tons of dislocation in different markets throughout the world. The 232 gives the potential for a broader solution that is less geography dependent and less individual product dependent.
4: Finally, Mr. Secretary, uh, if we just read the newspapers or watch the evening news and like that, we would conclude that all of Washington is consumed with investigations of various sorts and lawyers going back and forth. Give us a peek inside the administration. You've been called perhaps the most powerful commerce secretary in history. You have a lot on your agenda, even as we've discussed, we've touched some of right now. To what extent does this really impinge on your ability to get your job done? Or a different way to put it, how do you avoid it becoming a distraction?
5: Well, it's not a distraction at all. Um, I was in Miami on Friday with the president when he made his amazing announcement about how we're going to redo relationships with Cuba. And it was more excitement than at most average campaign rallies. It was a very heartwarming event, and especially because they had on stage a man who, when he was 12 years old, uh, his father was assassinated by the Castro regime and shortly after that the regime figured out this little boy was a child prodigy violinist so they ordered him to appear on some TV spectacular the brave little boy refused so the next day the stormtroopers came to his house surrounded him and said you little boy now you must play for us and you know what this boy did He played the Star Spangled Banner. And that's what the president had him play again on the stage in Miami. It's one of the most heartwarming, heart-rending tales I've seen in a long time. President is going about his job, which is managing the country. These investigations are something of a sideshow. Far as I can see, there's no there, there. It's just kind of a, a series of TV appearances by the various investigators, but there's been nothing tangible come to bear. And so in terms of the overall picture, the President is carrying out his program, then at commerce, we certainly are carrying out our program.
0: And now joining us, a gentleman who had a job in the locker room of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and the rest of his career was downhill from there. Michael Hayden joins us. Of course, General uh, Hayden is former head of the National Security Agency, director of the National Security Agency. I make jest of his time with the Pittsburgh Steelers. General, uh, very quickly, what did you learn in the Pittsburgh Steelers locker room before Duquesne?
6: The Steelers represent the city almost perfectly. And the ethic of the city is the blue car, go to work, do your job, work hard. And that's the way the Steelers operated as an organization. And the reason they're so popular in Pittsburgh is that's the way they operate on the field, too. You
0: know, uh, we have so many topics to speak of, and we have a generous time with you this morning. Let me speak with the uproar right now of a commander in chief. Abdicating decision making on the branches to the Secretary of Defense, etc. Um, we've had strong language on the show this morning that this is not appropriate. Do you agree that President Trump must take a more direct interest in the apportionment of our troops abroad? It, it would be good if he took
6: a more direct personal interest. And in, let I me mean, let me caution: you know, you can overachieve in that and try to make tactical decisions from the White House, which was a complaint sometimes against the Obama administration. So, yeah, I think he should show, show more interest. But be, be very clear, make no mistake, this is his responsibility. Don't care if Secretary Mattis picks the final number. This is the president's number. And he will have to live, and we should expect him to live with the consequences.
2: Uh, general, talk to me a little bit about Jim Comey. So you you, you know him. How well do you know him? I do, yes. Um, we had fairly frequent
6: contact in the Bush administration. It would have been 04, 05, 0, 06. Um, he was the deputy attorney general at the time. So not routine, but we knew one another. In fact, have a bit of a history on different sides of an issue with regard to the president's surveillance program. But, you know, Jim was tough, fair, well-informed, and highly ethical.
2: You're probably closer to the story than, than most of us. So how do you see this investigation into Russia unfolding? You think more people will be called to testify? And actually, how long does it take to do this investigation and follow up testimonies?
6: Well, the good news is Bob Mueller is going to conduct an exhaustive investigation. And so he's going to touch everyone in any way, shape or form related. The bad news is, and I'm sorry to report this, that's probably gonna take a year or a year and a half. And so we're gonna have that kind of hanging over us and you ask where do I think this ends up? I mm-hmm. I think it ends up in a cloud. It's going in there saying, Of course there was collaboration. You're gonna find evidence. If you go in there thinking, No, no way You're going to find a lack of evidence, and uh, this is going to remain a question mark over the country, I'm afraid.
0: General, we want to come back and talk about the immediate uh, moments of uh, cybersecurity and uh, issues, I guess, of espionage and intelligence. But I guess you didn't fly a B-29 bomber. You came out of the Air Force in 1969. What was your response when you heard that a U.S. jet had, had shot a Syrian jet out of the skies over the weekend?
6: Yeah, I not unexpected. That's a crowded battle space. And what's happening, and I think it's there were two wars going on. The Russians, the Iranians, the Syrians fighting the Syrian opposition. That was kind of the west of the country. And then we were fighting ISIS. And they were obviously related, but you could separate them. Now that we've got ISIS on their back,
0: Well, we're getting some break up there with General Hayden. We'll try to get a better connection uh, there in a moment. We're speaking with Michael Hayden, four star general and former director of the National Security Agency this morning. We'll see what we can do to get that hooked up again. That may be in the, in the day of the modern cell phone, that can be uh, a challenge with all that technology. General Hayden, how is the NSA different now than it was on your tour of duty?
6: Well, it uh, kind of continuing in a trend line we knew was going to be there when I was there, and that's moving in the direction of, well, let me just explain the dilemma. We've gone from a world in which signals intelligence, which intercepting communications, was uh, too, too little, too hard to get, to a world in which the communications out there are too much, too hard to understand. And we, we, move, we keep moving in that direction of too much, too hard to understand. And so it's the volume of modern communications that most challenges NSA, plus the availability of high-end encryption around the world, which makes it hard for the agency to do the job it's right. done to, for us for 60 years.
0: Without giving away the trade secrets, how do you respond to someone from the public saying, people like you, General, can tell what we're doing on our cell phones? Are we that vulnerable to, to intelligence communities? Can they just, quote-unquote, tap right into our conversations? The uh, threat you
6: just described isn't one that our citizens should feel from the American intelligence community. Now uh, That said... There, there are other intelligence organizations around the world that have good at what they do, and what you describe is technically possible. Our intelligence is controlled by law, controlled by oversight, controlled by a by a culture of deep respect to the Fourth Amendment about unreasonable search and seizure, and and so although you get some edgy issues, and Lord knows Congress is going to debate one of those later this summer. Uh, The threat to American privacy is not from American intelligence. It's from foreign intelligence services, and can I just add, from the commercial sector that does gather a bunch of information on each and every one of us for their own commercial needs.
2: Yeah, and that's something that certainly food for thought. General, can you talk to us a little bit about intelligence sharing with foreign entities? Uh, in the wake of the Manchester attack, there were questions here in the UK about whether the UK should really give files uh, to certain entities in the US. Is that a dangerous mindset?
6: It, it is. And um, I was like to say uh, for just under three years. And in that time, I went and visited about 50 countries, and that that wasn't espionage tourism. I went to those countries because we considered each and every one of them to be partners with us. And we shared information, frankly, with with countries that might surprise the, the general American population because, you know, intelligence services have a lot in common even when their political systems that they serve might be arguing with one another. Now, the tightest relationship we have is with a group of countries we call the Five Eyes, ourselves, the British, the Canadians, the Australians, and the New Zealanders. And there, particularly in the kind of work that NSA does, they're almost inseparable. And so I know we had some rough water here after the Manchester event, but I think we healed that pretty quickly because all of these countries depend on the others.
2: What do you think the Trump administration's message to NATO should be? I know there was a lot of talk when uh, President Trump came here about the fact that they're allies, but he did not mention Article 5. Is that, is that uh, just noise for nothing?
6: No, no, that, that, that's real. And it has a political effect. And I, and I wish some of the things, frankly, I wish all of the things you were saying and some other things, too, weren't happening. But I have found in my life experience, and this, this is a bright spot, the deepest keel on our relationship with other nations is almost always intelligence. It's, it's the part of the ship that keeps the rest of the ship more steady than it would otherwise be. So although that behavior you described is bad, hurts at the political level, doesn't help intelligence, I also believe that our intelligence relationships are, are actually quite stable.
0: General, on the time that we've got left uh, with you, you had a wonderful moment uh, in an auditorium named after Hap Arnold, I believe, out at the uh, Colorado Springs Academy of the Air Force, where you spoke to a bunch of uh, cadets in January of this year. What did you tell the young cadets? Uh, You know, in the media, I think we're so distorted with the news of military. What did you tell the troops sitting in the Hap Arnold auditorium? Uh,
6: I I was honored. They were giving me an award for leadership, uh, and I had a chance to talk to actually half of the Corps cadets, so that's a a, a really big crowd. And, And fundamentally, what I said to them was, work hard, do your job, but be a technical expert. But the more senior you get, the higher in rank you achieve, the less you're going to rely on any professional expertise that the Air Force has taught you. And the more you're going to rely on what you learned at home, at church, from your mom and dad, from your neighbors, the basic values that, that mm. create American society. And, and, and at one point, you get promoted for doing things right. At a certain point, you get promoted for doing the right things.
0: General Hayden, let's leave it there. Uh, Michael Hayden, the former director of the NSA uh, from Duquesne and, of course, uh, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency at one point. I'm Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B dot com slash V-R. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner and Smith Incorporated.